0: You're listening to the Meet the Farmers podcast with me, Ben Eagle. To listen to previous episodes, visit thinkingcountry.com or find the podcast on iTunes by searching for Meet the Farmers. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Meet the Farmers. Today I'm in Cambridgeshire again, talking to arable farmer and Nuffield scholar Stephen Briggs. Who is the tenant here at Whitehall Farm? Stephen farms cereals and apple trees on around 250 acres of land, which is registered as organic. And if you've attended pretty much any farming conference over the past decade or so, you've almost certainly heard of Stephen as a prominent advocate of agroforestry, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Stephen, thank you so much for having me today. Um, it's a real pleasure to actually finally be here. I've heard so much about this place um, and your work. Um, over time. I should actually give some context that later on today you're hosting an event for the Woodland Trust.
1: That's right well it's a pleasure to have you here on what is a glorious spring sunny day. It really is. Yeah as you're right but later on we're hosting an event at the farm here which is uh, being put on by the the Woodland Trust as a response to the government's command paper on uh, agricultural policy going forward post-Brexit so we're very pleased to be hosting that. Can you give me some more detail
0: about the farm here um, and what you're growing?
1: Okay, so the farm is uh, 250 acres. In total, we farm 270 acres. We have uh, another 20-odd acres uh, 25 miles away in Rutland. Here we're growing cereals, gluten-free oats, uh, wheat, some field-scale vegetables, and some um, sort of market garden vegetables for for the farm shop, and also uh, the agroforestry, which is all fruit trees. We participate as a, with a, a high-level stewardship agreement, of which we're in a year, year 8 of 10. Uh, we have uh, sort of ditch management, so our ditches are all nice and scruffy for wildlife. We have um, sort of riparian buffers, pollen and nectar mixtures, overwinter stubbles, wild bird seed mixtures, hedge planting, scrape creation, educational access, all kinds of stuff really. Mm. And you've just gone into a new venture, you've just opened a farm shop. Uh, Having done my Nuffield Farming Scholarship back in 2011 looking at agroforestry, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, I suppose one of the things that really inspired me was people that had connected with the uh, the end consumer, both in terms of retail uh, and sort of engagement in farming, but also in terms of educating people. And, and we looked at where we were going in terms of the business, and you know, it's pretty tough to make profit in farming, whatever you're doing, especially when you're a relatively small farmer, especially when you're a tenant. Uh, we looked at the fact that we've got 220,000 people on the doorstep in Peterborough, uh, we're on a reasonably busy road. Uh, there isn't a farm shop immediately close to us, and we thought, well, let's give it a go. So, it's been a year in the making. The shop that you, you, we've just met in this time last year had tractors parked in it, so it's been a, it's been a big, big job. And uh, on the back of that, our, our landlord's been, been really, really very good and they've, they've extended our tenancy for another 15 years.
0: You started as tenant here in 2007? That's right, yeah. How has the
1: farm changed
0: since you began that tenancy?
1: So we're first-generation farmers, so we started with nothing and have got most of that left. I think when we moved on to the farm, the lawnmower was the only piece of equipment we really had. Uh, And we've gone from effectively using contractors for everything to to now doing everything in-house, which actually, you know, a mix of contractors was fine, but but actually we were finding things weren't getting done in a timely way. Added to that that we started converting the farm to organic uh, status more or less immediately. That was finished by 2009. And uh, that meant we had to have uh, quite a lot of specialist kit anyhow for that. Uh, and eventually, I think the last bit of kit we bought was, you know, the drill and the combine. So we do everything in in house now. Um, when we took the farm over, it broadly had grown wheat, oilseed rape, and sugar beet, with the odd crop of potatoes for probably 25 years. Yeah. Um, so it was it was pretty tired. It was largely monoculture. When I look back now, with with 10 years under my belt. The soils were absolutely exhausted. They were pretty knackered and, and sitting wet a lot of the time. And, and now it's taken us quite a long period of time, but the, the farms is improving and yields are going up. So the
0: decision to go organic, was that pragmatic because of, because of the land here, or was
1: that an ideology that you wanted to follow regardless? It's a mixture of both. Um, uh, it's, it's pragmatic in that there is, a, there is a, uh, a good market, and as a small farmer... Uh, it's very difficult to play into those big commodity games Um, so so we're we're niche producers producing for a niche market Uh, we could add value but actually moreover it fitted my farming philosophy in terms of caring for the soil and caring for the environment but probably one of the one of the biggest things which is often overlooked is that our working capital requirement as an organic business is probably only about 35 percent of what it was as a conventional farmer And as a tenant, that has a, uh, you know, especially as a new entrant, that has a massive implication on the risks that our businesses are exposed to. So it's, it's, a, it's a pragmatic, it's an opportunity approach. It's a mixture of the above. Right. Let's dive into agroforestry. Okay. Can you give me your simple definition of agroforestry um, and also tell me when, <coughs> how you first learnt about it? Okay. I mean, agroforestry is really where you've got a mixture of trees and or crops and or pasture are on the same land area and importantly where there are economic and ecological benefits from having the two things operating or coexisting as opposed to having disbenefits. So it's the best of forestry and the best of agriculture mixed on the same land parcel. Here uh, at Whitehall Farm we are a silver arable system so it's crops and trees mixed together. I first became exposed to agroforestry when my wife and I were working for the Department of International Development and the World Bank in Africa. I was working on soils, but I was aware of stuff that was going on with tropical agroforestry. In 2007, when we moved to this farm to experience the the wind erosion and the fen blows, as someone that trained as a soil scientist, I found that unacceptable to watch our most precious asset disappearing over the road thought how do we solve this and I looked around for you know a couple of years or 18 months couple of years trying to work out what was the best way to to solve that was it cover crops was it green manures was it you know different inputs etc etc and actually I thought back to my my time in Africa uh, in tropical agroforestry and thought can we apply this on a on a temperate basis through that and the uh, Nuffield scholarship I did realize that that was that was probably a, a pretty reasonable way forward. So we designed the system here based upon a silver arable system growing cereals and trees. The tree of choice we opted for was a fruit tree, so apples, partly because we could add value through the fruit, it's another output, partly because actually we're tenants so we needed an economic return within 15 years of our tenancy and to be frank I couldn't wait for an oak tree to grow. Partly because actually trees, the apple trees are relatively small and shallow rooting, so they weren't going to impinge upon our drainage system. And you know they delivered for they delivered for the wind erosion, they delivered for biodiversity, they delivered for pollinators, they delivered for diversifying our markets, etc., etc. So so that's that's the route we went. There are benefits for livestock farmers as well. Mm. Can you embellish a little bit on that? There's benefits for livestock in terms of so say for ruminants, for example, that might be shelter from wind and bad weather. There's increasing evidence to show that actually some trees provide a nutritional benefit. Cattle quite often browse shrubs and trees because they're getting something from those leaves and herbage that they're not getting from the grass because they're deeper rooting, so trace elements. And then things like poultry. Well, I mean poultry are a are a woodland species. Uh, it's only us as humans that have taken them out and stuck them in sheds or in open-range pasture. And they, they very much like being under tree cover uh, and people that are practising, people like David Brass, who are doing uh, free-range eggs in, in the Lake District under, under agroforestry, say they get less mortality, they get higher output. You know, what's not, what's not to like? Yeah, so why isn't everyone doing it? The biggest problem, as I said, or the biggest challenge, is that most farmers have a severe infection of arbophobia. You know, they, they don't get trees. And most foresters actually have a, a, have a pretty big infection rate of agriphobia. They don't get agriculture. So they've always been considered as separate disciplines. But the reality is, actually, it's just a different kind of crop. It's the same skill set, it just takes a bit longer to grow, it's a longer rotation. In terms of policy, what's holding agroforestry back? Well, historically, common agricultural policy post-war said if you had more than 50 trees per hectare on a bit of land, it ceased, it ceased to be agricultural; it became forestry. So, no farmer in their right mind was going to uh, plant trees on agricultural land and forego their their agricultural subsidy eligibility. Uh, and that's been in place for a long time. There was a change in 2009 when fruit trees became an eligible uh, SPS or IX crop, as it was then. Uh, and then a further 12. In change in 2012 when myself and a couple of other farmers stood up in the Parliament in Brussels and argued for change, a party to help me move that 50 trees per hectare to 100 trees per hectare which is quite a big shift. Going forward now actually at where we are today in 2018, DEFRA here in the UK say well if you can carry on normal farming practice then it's still eligible and I would hope as we develop our new agricultural policy going forward outside of Europe that um, innovations such as this Will be blocked less and farmers will be freer to, to undertake uh, practices like agroforestry without limitations of bureaucracy. Mm. Then later on today, as we alluded to earlier, we'll be discussing the, the DEFRA
0: command paper. Yeah. Um, and but in a specifically within an agroforestry context. Just in mind going into that, some personal thoughts from you on the command paper um, and perhaps. If someone out there is interested in agroforestry, um, doesn't have an in-depth knowledge, but would like to acknowledge it within uh, within the consultation, Mm. what kinds of things should they be looking at and and mentioning?
1: Well, I think, firstly, removing restrictions to having trees within a a farming context is is absolutely key, so allowing farmers, not putting blockages in place, allowing farmers to plant trees and retain eligibility as a farmer, I think is, is paramount. Secondly, I think that there's quite a big play within the command paper suggesting that uh, knowledge transfer, knowledge exchange, training, and skills are supported better within agriculture. And many farmers that would like to do agroforestry don't have, necessarily have those skills, and supporting those would be would be quite important. And there is information out there. So things like the Afinet Agroforestry Information Network Programme, the European Agroforestry Federation. Farm Woodland Forum—they've they, all got good information sources in terms of supporting uh, farmers with information on agroforestry. Let's turn towards youth. Did you grow up wanting to be a farmer? Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I started life as an engineer, and in, in a former life, I designed I designed car bodies yeah. uh, for Rover, and um, I I was quite disillusioned by wanting to sit in an office all the time. And actually left and put myself through agricultural college, and then did a lot of travelling, and then went back to college and did a master's in soil science, and then ended up working in Africa, India, a fair bit for international agencies, government agencies, World Bank, etc. On soils, really through having a love of nature and a love of the environment, and and actually really wanted to be a farmer. In 1998, I came back to the UK and uh, started doing some advisory work with organic farmers because they were the only ones interested in soil, how times change. And in 2001, set up my own consultancy business, Ab- Abacus Agri. Yeah, so just, tell, tell me a bit about Abacus. and how, how did that start up and well, it, it, what kind of things are you doing today? <laughs> it started through adversity in that uh, in, in 2001, I was made redundant from my agronomy role because of foot and mouth, so... Uh, myself and a couple of other chaps started our own consultancy business and that's been going from strength to strength uh, and I work with principally organic farmers but, but actually more and more with farmers that are interested in those sort of ecological principles really. uh, and not necessarily being organic but, but sharing some of those ideas. I, I'm seeing a massive shift in people's attitudes uh, and uh, as I say, I mean, I, I did my Masters in soil Science 27 years ago and for 25 years I've been in the in in the dull, you know, sort of out in the boondocks, and no one's been interested. And all of a sudden, the world's gone mad, and everyone's interested in soil, and that's long overdue. Why do you think that happened? I think it's happened because people have hit the buffers with their farming systems. You know, frankly, rape wheat rotations were never going to stand the test of time. Uh, Soils were going to fall down eventually, and they Hmm. have done. So some of its farmers, farming's hit the buffers. Economics, it's hit the buffers of black grass, it's hit the buffers of soil quality, and so it's part of it's through necessity, part of it's through adversity, and part of it's through actually a better awareness, and that, that's great. So, my role within Abacus is working with, with farmers that are interested in those sort of more e- ecology, ecological approaches, and I think there's a great opportunity for, for all farmers, whether they're organic or commercial, to share that information. And, and I, I don't like that sort of evangelical approach, that's never something I've I've sort of subscribed to. You're a tenant here, but specifically within an agroforestry context, do you
0: think, and it's an impossible question in some ways, but do you think that agroforestry will continue here in some way?
1: Do do you hope that it will in some way? It's an impossible question. I mean, my landlord, and rightly so, said if you leave the farm, you've got to take the trees with you (laughs) or remove them and return it to to an arable status, uh, unless a following tenant wants onto the trees. So I can only hope that actually we prove the system it works well and it's profitable and, and any subsequent tenant will, will continue doing what they're doing. But um, uh, we, we started on a 15 year farm business tenancy. We've surrendered our surrendered our tenancy and taking on another 15 years which will take me well into retirement so that's that's fine. Turning towards policy and politics, are you
0: optimistic or pessimistic about the next few years in the light of Brexit, new policy etc? Um, and can you give me One message to the civil servants down at Smith Square in Defra um, of something that you would like either to stay the same that's in the current policy framework or something that you would like to subtly
1: or radically change. Firstly, I'm hugely optimistic. As a a farmer, I think there's, you know, people are always going to want to eat. So so let's get closer to our marketplace, which is what we're trying to do here, especially with the farm shop. Uh, Secondly, as an organic farmer i think you know the organic market is largely a domestic market we don't really export much we import a huge amount and that that import substitution has has all of a sudden got very expensive because of a change of sterling and it's going to get more difficult because of tariffs and border control and everything else so for me there's a massive opportunity there in terms of uh, policy and, and smith square the first thing would be let's free up farmers of bureaucracy and Give them a, give them an enabling environment in which they can innovate and develop their businesses. So that's that's number one. That should be an overriding factor. Uh, number two, let's support them with skills and education. What an interesting statistic from the uh, command paper was that yeah, that, that uh, in two thousand thirteen, so it's an historic statistic. In two thousand thirteen, only eighteen percent of farmers were, to quote the paper, fully qualified in agriculture. That's appalling. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm not saying, I'm not doing down people that have been farming all their life, but actually, if we want public money, we should be able to demonstrate we're professional what we do. Uh, so so uh, providing farmers with that support, I think, is uh, to prove their, their qualifications in education and an ongoing continued professional development, I think yeah, is fundamental. Yeah. CPD it seems to be at the top of many people's yeah, yeah, list. Yeah. Uh, in we'll terms, terms of we'll what, what to leave alone? Uh, I, I think broadly the, uh, the the environmental land management schemes, the OELS, the uh, ELS, the HLS, the countryside stewardship scheme, are actually pretty good schemes, but they've become overcomplicated. Uh, if they can simplify them, take out some of the bureaucracy, leave leave, leave them as they are. Uh, and, and I suppose flippantly, uh, even though we tear our hair out at this time of the year because the maps change, actually, at long last, in. 20 odd years of doing doing consultancy with farmers we've got decent maps on farms at long last so leave the mapping in place (laughs) it's quite useful
0: cool i think we'll leave it there but uh, yeah i'm looking forward to the uh, event later on and yeah good luck for everything here on the farm
2: i'm helen cheshire and i'm the senior advisor for farming working for the woodland trust we're very keen on integrating trees into farming systems to support sustainable agriculture going forward and feel very strongly that we need to work with the farming sector to learn how best to do this, to understand from their point of view the role that trees can play for their farming businesses and at the same time explore how trees can deliver a whole array of public benefits.
0: And we're here today at Stephen Briggs Farm in the Fens, which is an integrated arable system, trees, but what work is the Woodland Trust doing, if any, with livestock farmers elsewhere in the country to encourage agroforestry techniques?
2: We're doing an awful lot of work with livestock farmers because our definition of agroforestry is a very broad one and that's any sort of formulation of trees integrated into farming systems. So that includes hedges and shelter belts, planting along river edges, as well as what we've seen here today, which is alley cropping. Um, So certainly if you take upland sheep farming, then there's a real role to play for shelter belts and hedges in terms of providing that shelter and shade for the livestock, improving the food conversion efficiency, while at the same time delivering a connectivity across the landscape and adding to the biodiversity of the landscape, helping to prevent soil erosion, warming the soil earlier in the season, etc.
0: Today at the event, there must be 25, 30 people here. We've got a mix of NGOs, uh, farmers, landowners and advisors. Uh, The point of today, we're speaking in the light of the DEFRA command paper, which the deadline for responses is in in a couple of weeks' time. What are your hopes for the day in terms of encouraging responses?
2: In terms of um, submitting our own response, we want to very much do that in conjunction with the voice of the farmer. So we're certainly learning and we're very open what the farmers are talking about certainly in the context of making sure that agroforestry is going to be fully embedded into any new land environmental schemes but we also want to encourage farmers to submit their own responses we're happy to help them if required because i think it's very important it is a bit of a once in a lifetime opportunity although i have just been at another defra consultation this morning and i think the tone coming back from defra is that we might not all get what we want and therefore there might be various reiterations of this going forward
0: I was speaking with Helen there on a walk around Stephen's fields, during which we were shown his cropping and, of course, his apple trees. We then returned to the farm shop, where a panel session and open discussion was chaired by Darren Moorcroft of the Woodland Trust. Panel members included Helen and Stephen, as well as Amy Sharp, who's the Agricultural Manager of LJ Fairbairn Poultry, Richard Bower, who's a Staffordshire farmer, as well as the NFU Next Generation Chair, and Lynn Davis from the RSA. Here are a few short excerpts from the session.
3: Lib, uh, so RSA and the Food and Farming
4: Commission the Food, Farming and Countryside Commission so um, it is uh, perhaps a little curious that in this group of experts there are some of the RSA sitting on this table but we are hosting a commission that has been uh, um, brought about through a number of organisations including the National Trust, Soil Association Tenant Farmers Association uh, to explore what we're going to do post Brexit, and it's a very busy space so are totally aware of that I guess what we're trying to bring to, to the table is to look at how we can think about this in a more broad and, dare I say, the word holistic way. Um, essentially, you know, we live in a, a largely free market. The government essentially is a mechanism for the deliverer of our values. What do we value as a society? And if we're thinking about subsidies right now, we have subsidies for a range of things. We have subsidies for labor. We call it universal credit, and it allows us to pay some of our agricultural below a living wage that they can actually feed their families on. We have subsidies for food, as we know. We subsidize farmers for farming the land. uh, And we also, you know, we subsidize food through schools. We have massive procurement programs which source a specific kind of food. We subsidize health. We subsidize the poor health of our society through the NHS um, and potentially the bad diet of a large portion of the population. In fact, it's the biggest cost for the NHS, it's diet-related illness. And we subsidise water, and we pay that again through our own pockets to take out the agricultural chemicals that are put on the land. So when we talk about subsidy, it's a really broad set of things that we're talking about. Um, So the current consultation uh, process, you know, we're seeing we're seeing some positive language potentially come out talking about environment, water, starting to link up some of these things. But I think we all know that the devil's in the detail. Um, how can a top-down, UK-wide policy actually deliver the kind of changes we need to see on the ground? You know, farming is so nuanced. Every site is completely different. Every piece of land needs something different to manage it at its best.
3: But I, I think, from my perspective we the the farm, what we just need is certainty. Yeah. We need to know that if there is a policy, it's not going to be... Yes, I that should be reviewed by the world's but what we don't want is, is constant change. It's impossible to run a business whereby the, the brand shouldn't really be. So having some kind of stability is, is, is fundamental. There is going to be change uh, from a review, then that's transitioned in to try and inbuild Shouldn't the transition be quite yeah, I wouldn't say short, but shortened. Um, but so certainly that, then it's a support policy once you've established it that's the important thing because you're not going to get a yield for 5 or 6 years it's the transition to change the mindset we're going to take away direct payment and get onto a new payment as well a new support system but actually it's those supports that allow the business to develop so before I ask the, the panel to, to nominate one thing that they think should either change the command paper or be retained I'm going to ask you the same question. to Give them time to think. I think one of the biggest challenges we're going to face, as we've always faced in farming, is that generational change from grandfather to father to father to son. You know what I mean? That's the way we've done it. We've always done it like this. and We've got to change ourselves rather than wanting government to change us. We need to start changing internally ourselves and listening to the skilled next generation. Martin, locally managed and flexible. Whatever's coming, let you know the right tree, the right scheme. it's going to be delivered the right way, locally, but it's also going to be adjustable. Cultivate innovation. Forestry and agriculture don't innovate. I think we're a bit lazy. It's the old adage that if you take a forester into the field, as I've done, and a farmer, I'll never make eye contact because the forester is looking up at the tree, <laughs>
4: the
3: tree canopy. Farmers looking down in the street and so, and actually, the only people that are looking forward are the agroforesters. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, who would like to go first on the panel? Well, I, don't
2: want to go longer, but I want agroforestry mentioned in it and clearly defined in it, and I think one of the best ways we can do that is by showing examples of people like Stephen and, uh, and showing how farmers are doing it already and the real benefits. And I think, for me, we, we, we kind of came off thing, but is it there for the, the payment system, or is it about business
4: case? And I think showing that, yes, it might help you get your payment, whatever that is, but actually it's a really, it's, it's good business, and you can make a profit,
2: or you can have a new enterprise, because that's what's going to get the hearts and minds, and you would hope. Okay, that than so just, important. I'm going to get payment, and that's really, I think, the right. to
4: our uh, my wish would be education, from the little whips of the trees to the little whips of the children. <laughs> um so that we're not missing out on the talent, that we are doing the near market research, the education and the empowered people that we have, and that the people that are in the developed positions in the environment agency, the woodland trust, the people that the farmers are actually seeking from are educated well informed and our mm-hmm. Just as
5: Add on to that really I think we've like got a massive opportunity now. I think we're much stronger if we all stand together and if we all go to government together with, with these messages. Um, it, it's hard enough getting to agree on things, never mind getting everyone through, the whole industry. But and I think I think the whole the whole supply chain, I think we should all be working together. And like I say, public goods are defined as well, Michael defines them as things that the market doesn't pay for. But I think we've discussed all this today, education, like you say, mental health, mental well being. Soil, water erosion. so, yeah, and, and the public access thing, a lot of farmers are worried that the public access means the public can go on your farm, and it's not, it's, you, you can allow the public onto your farm, and you can educate them as well, so, I think it's a massive opportunity, unless you're all sort of standing together, and that's going to go I'm sure you've got something to say, Yeah, I suppose,
3: the wish list, the Christmas list for uh, hmm. the system, the trust um, policy, there was a clear commitment to the 25-year plan for supporting agriculture. it was in there, we want that translated into what? Uh, I think a freedom for, for farmers to innovate from the mortgages in the farm, and as has been uh, expressed better than I can, uh, really putting the agriculture back into the agribusiness. Well, thank you very much.
0: Afterwards, I caught up with Chris Price from the CLA and father and son farmers Richard and Raymond Bauer to get their take on the event.
5: It's great to see how many, see so many farmers here, particularly farmers who are keen to find new ways of doing things, new sources of income, new ways of delivering public goods. I think that so long as we can all work together and ensuring that the right incentives are in place and the restrictions and inhibitions relaxed or removed altogether, um, we can make a real success of post-Brexit agricultural policy. I I think it's been a fantastic event uh, coming to actually a working commercial farm and to to see how they've used agroforestry to their benefit and harvesting the produce and actually selling it in their farm shop here as well. I think that's been fantastic. Um, We've spoken about the challenges of current agricultural policy but also the opportunities with the new command paper at the moment and and new domestic agricultural policy that systems like this can can be put out on 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 a large scale and we will definitely be looking at maybe doing something like this at home. We ourselves planted uh, 15 acres of trees, hardwood trees, broadleaf wood, in 96. So it's been going on for a while. I see this, even us, because we're open to public, so people come to our farm to visit us. I could see us putting a few strips or a few small areas of fruit or something different to people to come and look, pick your own fruit. You know, give given me a lot of ideas today, and I'm an old man. <laughs>
0: Closing there with Staffordshire farmer Raymond Bower. Thanks to everyone who appeared on the podcast today, especially Stephen Briggs, both for being featured and for hosting the Woodland Trust event. A reminder that the deadline for sending your response to DEFRA regarding the command paper is the 8th of May. For more information, search for Health and Harmony, the future for food farming and the environment in a green Brexit. I can't say how important it is that they get as many responses as possible. That's it from me. Thank you very much for listening. Please do subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or sign up to updates at thinkingcountry.com. See you next time.